0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. A new report by the Pembina Institute about light rail transit shows that Hamilton is not the only city that's having some problems trying to sell this whole concept to uh, to the public at large. Uh, others are going through some uh, bumps, as you might have expected as well. Lindsay Wigginton is a transportation analyst. Uh, the report produced in collaboration, of course, with Evergreen and the Pembina Institute. And Lindsay joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about the results. Lindsay, Lindsay thank you so much for the time. It's uh, great to have you with us today.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here.
0: Uh, talk to us about, uh, about how you came about the, and, and gathered information for the, uh, the, the report itself.
1: Sure. Um, for this report, we really started with the premise that we're actually building out a historic amount of rapid transit in Ontario uh, to meet burgeoning population growth and also to be able to offer uh, transportation options other than the car. And in many of the communities where it's being built, um, like in Hamilton, rapid transit is new. And so we really wanted to know, you know, on the ground, how's it going? Uh, What are the challenges that rapid transit projects are facing? And uh, what are some of the factors of success? And, you know, where there was concern or conflict, we wanted to look at that and understand where it's coming from and and kind of create a guidebook to how transit can succeed, um, because there's lots of benefits um, when it does. And so... We went about this by um, choosing four uh, case study projects happening in Ontario um, that are at sort of different stages of development. Um, and we interviewed uh, different stakeholders and, and leaders in those four communities. So we talked to project teams, uh, businesses and community members uh, to kind of get a bit of insight into, into how it was going um, on the ground.
0: This is, I think, very instructive, too, because you've given perspective here by talking to other municipalities that are going through a similar situation. I think oftentimes we tend to look in a bubble and and think, you know, well, it's happening here. We don't really pay much attention to what's going on in other places. Did you find a lot of similarities as you you rolled through this process?
2: We
1: really did. I mean, we made an effort to look at... Um, projects that are at different stages, and so in that sense, you know, some are still working through the design questions mm-hmm. and the priorities questions, and others are really at the stage of uh, dealing with the, the tunnel boring machines and uh, new development happening. And so in that sense, you know, there, there's different things happening, but absolutely, there were some real common threads around both the, the challenges that arise and uh, some of the things we can do to, uh, to address those challenges.
0: Let's let's talk about some of those then, because I, I think it's important for us to understand that what's happening here in Hamilton has happened in other places. And, and what's also obviously helpful, I think an awful lot of the time, Lindsay, when you go through a process like this, is, is maybe you can learn something. In other words, hey, so-and-so went through this uh, kitchen or Ottawa, one of the other places that you, you, you studied as well, uh, maybe could offer some insights as to how we're supposed to deal with some of the problems we're facing now.
1: Totally. Uh, That was kind of part of our hypothesis for the project, and actually we're seeing that already. One of the interesting things we learned is that um, some communities who are earlier on in their um, project planning phase have actually sort of sent delegations of city staff and councillors to, for example, Waterloo, where uh, the project is further ahead in order to to learn about their experience and to to see kind of what it looks like on the ground. So we wanted to really kind of amplify that and make that even more possible for both communities that are already sort of well on their way to building rapid transit and those uh, that
0: that are just getting started. So here's... Let me try to apply that then to to what's going on here. And I'm sure you've heard some of the concerns that have been raised in varying degrees, especially here in our community, about this. Uh, and, And how... The, the the report would address these and how other communities have maybe addressed these too because I hear let me tell you every time we talk about this on our program uh, there's there's always going to be usually about the, the same four or five questions that ask variations on that same theme uh, one of them that comes right up for the, the get go of course is the design itself in other words here in Hamilton as you know uh, there was some concern maybe this should go on Main Street no it should go on King Street back and forth and then it was announced no it's going on King Street and and the pushback there was well who made that decision? Show me the data. Uh, there's there's mm-hmm. almost a a, a, a a skepticism here that that just seems to be a big dark cloud over an awful lot of this project. Yeah, I
1: mean. We should probably start by saying that, you know, transit projects aren't the only kind of infrastructure projects that bring these kinds of challenges, and this is something we see, you know, when we when we do um, any kind of infrastructure changes. No, in oh,
0: listen, space. you don't have to tell us. We went and through a stadium debate here a couple of years ago. There
1: you go. <laughs> there we still go. have the and, wounds and so, from that. Yeah, I think though that transit is unique in some ways. Um, it, it is a really emotionally charged. Um, issue these days. And, you know, I think that that's partly related to the fact that it ties into some of the broader uh, social debates we're having around, you know, the place of the car in the city, how we deal with climate change, and how we spend our, our public resources. Um, and so working that out is, is really about sort of working out some of the bigger questions. And what we found is that, you know, where there's concern or resistance to a project, it's not usually related to anything around folks not, you know, agreeing that, In principle, building out rapid transit is a good thing. Generally, it's related to the planning process and what you were sort of speaking to around. um, There's been a visioning exercise, and there's been an exercise where folks have gotten together and said, "You know, these corridors make the most sense based on data, and here's what we're going to build out on the long term." But oftentimes, that happened quite a while ago, and. Folks haven't been involved in that uh, process, and so when we're not part of the conversation around the vision for the community, and we learn about a project for the first time when we learn it's coming down our street and it's going to be disruptive, um, that I think legitimately leads to concern. So, uh, and it, that was a challenge that we saw, and, and I think a way to address that is really making sure that those big picture conversations happen. That Everyone who needs to be involved is involved in those uh, discussions, and that we keep tying back the detailed uh, design debates to the the big picture of of what we're trying to do and 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 ultimately to the benefits that it will bring for um, these communities as well.
0: Again, again, I want to get your perspective on on what happened in in some of the other communities uh, because one of the other major concerns that I've heard an awful lot, and I know city staff here in Hamilton have heard as well, is there have been some modifications to the design. As you know, when we first started talking about this, this is years ago now. Uh, it was going to go from McMaster University to Eastgate Square, east to west, and everybody was okay. That's good. Uh, you. son now, not that there was universal appeal to that, but that was going to be the plan. Uh, then the province came along and they announced the funding and said, "No, no, it's not going to go as far east as Eastgate Square. It's only going to go to the Queenston Traffic Circle, uh, and there's going to be a spur line from uh, downtown to the waterfront." Well, okay, that's that's interesting. We'll do that. Then they came along a few months ago and said, no, nah, we're not going to do the spur line down to the waterfront now, uh, It's but it's only going to go to Queenston traffic, and on and on. And people uh, I said, look, my head's spinning here. Who's making these decisions, and how come? I don't remember any, any any feedback, any public input into these sorts of things. Somebody in some place is making these decisions, and we feel as if we're kind of left out of the process.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's a common sentiment across some of the projects, and I should say, I mean, in principle, that there would be changes over the course of a project isn't in and of itself a bad thing, because okay. when we have meaningful participation and we're gathering new information, we want to know that the project leaders are able to respond to that. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, we did look into uh, the public engagement that the, the project team um, has carried out around the project, and there's, there's been a lot of um, activity on the ground that's that's been done, and um, One example is that the project team sort of twice a year uh, has a program that they call Community Connectors, and they knock on the doors of the businesses and residents on the proposed corridor um, in order to reach them, understanding that not everyone has the time to come out to sort of a more traditional town hall style meeting. Um, and, and what we heard from them is that that was actually a way to get some really rich feedback in terms of that detailed design that you're talking about. So, you know, what happens to our loading bay here? What happens to access to our building here? And um, hearing some ideas and, and keeping those people informed along the corridor. So that's one example of, of good engagement. Um, to your question, I mean, I think that um to a certain extent, transit projects are are going to always feel a little bit messy, and I think that's that's part of it and um another another thing that we uh, that we communicated in the report that I think is really important to do is to have uh open and transparent data around these projects and and you were talking about sort of you know the routes being changed and stuff. Mm-hmm. And sometimes um, a lot of the debate happens on the basis of uh, sort of numbers without having, you know, context and making sure that we all have a shared understanding of, of where those numbers are coming from and, and what they're about.
0: Yeah, because when you look at it, and and you've been able to compare, I mean, Ottawa's a lot further along than we are, KW's a lot further along than we are in, in these projects right now. For, for many people that are even commenting on this, I guess, here in the Hamilton area anyway, Lindsay, this is still very much in the abstract, isn't it?
1: It is, and that's such a challenge that we identified. Is really, you know, how do you, especially in communities like Hamilton, where rapid transit isn't something that you have right now, how do you make it real, and how do you envision the actual change that it might, um, that it might entail? And again, there there are techniques we can use for that. Um, one example was, you know, in Mississauga, they actually have a real LRT vehicle set up outside City Hall, and so. People walking around the city can, can stumble upon it and, and take a look and, and start imagining what it might look like. Um, similarly, using techniques in in meetings and workshops where uh, participants can actually work with visual tools, uh, build models, kind of start being able to visualize both the transit side and, and I should say that it's important also that there be good land use planning around a transit project in order to get the kind of transit supportive Um, development uh, we might need around these corridors, and so uh, there needs to be lots of public dialogue around that aspect um, as well.
0: The report talks about, there's a phrase there that just jumped out at me. (laughs) Uh, It says, uh, embracing conflict um, as this process unfolds. Explain what that means.
1: Yeah, well, to us that means that the fact that there's, uh, you know, sort of intense debate around these projects isn't necessarily a bad thing, and we think that, uh, by having these discussions, um, the the wide range of stakeholder groups and leaders are, building knowledge, and they're also building relationships that ultimately can serve these communities quite well, both for future transit projects and other types of, of projects. And, you know, there are two ways to react to conflict. One is to avoid it, and the other is to really embrace it and, and to use uh, techniques to harness that and and pull out the information that is behind those um, conflictual positions, because often, often there's value behind... Uh, the, the, the conflictual positions that different stakeholders might have. So um, I think that's something that there are efforts being done to do that in Hamilton. And we actually saw a really interesting example of that in in Ottawa, for example, where, um, you know, there was a conflict between the city and the National Capital Commission around one part of the route. And so they, they addressed that head on by, you know, forming a working group having uh, decision makers at the table in that working group and really working through the different interests and positions behind that conflict and coming to a, a technical solution that was acceptable for everybody. So that was an example of, you know, a real conflict leading to actually an improvement um, on on the project as a
0: whole. How was, in in the other cities, how was the political resolve as this came along? And as you mentioned, there's going to be conflict, and we've certainly seen some semblance of that here in Hamilton. Uh, some differing opinions uh, and at the same time for the thing to move forward I mean there's got to be somebody that's going to say look at you know like Winston Churchill said when you're going through hell keep going you know to get the other end Uh, and 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 I know Mayor Watson in Ottawa has been a champion for the LRT system there Uh, the previous mayor not so much so and there seemed to be a will on council what was it like in 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 some of the other cities that are are facing these same sorts of challenges now?
1: Yeah. Again, um, really kind of similar uh, realities emerging, and so the role of councilors, as we highlighted in the report, is is incredibly important, both because they have sort of a formal decision-making role, both on the transit project side and the land use. Planning side, but also because you know they're really the local leaders and they're the front line of contact with uh, their constituents, and so they're the first ones to hear concerns. They're the first ones to get questions, and because rapid transit is is new in these communities, uh, councillors really need to be equipped both with information and understanding uh, around what the project really does mean on the ground, both you know sort of the hard parts of it and the good parts of it, in order to to be able to have those conversations. And another challenge uh, related to that is that. As you know, in Hamilton, these projects take a really long time from sort of conception through design, procurement, construction and, and implementation. And so we can see a turnover in um, in the local leadership as well. And so there's a need to really uh, keep supporting those councillors in the work that they're doing and, and keep them informed and, and able to sort of... Um, Understand uh, everything going on behind the transit project
0: well that 's one of the political realities isn 't it uh, that <laughs> uh, elected leaders kind of like to get reelected uh, more often than not and uh, and that obviously that that goal can have an impact on on their resolve to, towards some of these other things and we 're at that uh, tipping point right now obviously there 's going to be a municipal election next year. Uh, so we're going to be seeing, I guess, just where we are and where the support's going to be on this, too. Uh, Ottawa, as you say, has moved beyond that right now, and so did KW. Although, as you say, it wasn't unanimous, uh, but they did have enough votes to move forward on it and go on there. I, I guess the other thing that, that, that we have to talk about here is that uh, no matter how good a job the, the city staff and the politicians do to, to try to move this forward and educate and inform the, the public, there's always going to be people that are going to be offside on this
1: sure there is and i i think that we can um we can see that as an opportunity to sort of reach out more broadly and, and keep those folks informed as well. Um, one element that we highlighted in the report that was especially, um, present and, and interesting in Hamilton was the role of other stakeholder groups in also sort of being champions for dialogue and information gathering around the project. And so absolutely the project team in the city are, are responsible for that, but, um, other local leaders can, can even have a broader reach and, and have an interesting role in that. And so, for example, in Hamilton, uh, Groups like the Chamber of Commerce have played a really interesting role. Um, some of the research coming out of the um, the local university and then other uh, sort of citizen-based groups that have formed to uh, share information and, and have discussions around city building. And so that kind of network of... Um, of discussions, I think, really underpins all of this and and can, you know, sort of stay constant in a way that uh, even as municipal councils are are turning over. Um, So for us, that was a really important part.
3: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show,
0: weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Shocking news, of course, uh, from Ancaster, just up the road uh, for many of us. An Ancaster man has been charged and arrested in a massive Yahoo data breach the U.S. Department of Justice, in a release, says the defendants used unauthorized access to Yahoo systems to steal information from at least 500 million accounts. Uh, a number of people were arrested. One of them is 22-year-old Kareem Baratov from Ancaster, uh, from the Meadowlands area of Ancaster. We're going to get a couple of different angles on this, including uh, some people that uh, know this uh, individual. John Thompson is going to join us, first of all, Security Colton's. A consultant, rather, with Strategic Intelligent Group. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. John, thank you so much for the time. It's uh, great to have you with us today. Thanks for inviting me. You, you know, oftentimes when you and I have had conversations in the past, and and you know, it's something that happens over there or here, and it's kind of in the abstract. Uh, it uh, it it's a different situation. I mean, this this is this is our neighborhood. This is our neck of the woods. Some guy that maybe a lot of us saw in grocery stores or pharmacies or something like this is arrested for like this. It's a it's an eye opener.
2: Yeah, Uh, and as usual, the sort of the Canadian, you know, who us reflex kicked in because these sound, you know, awfully exotic and interesting, and therefore really can't have anybody uh, in Canada involved in these things. But uh, look at the other side of it, there are also probably uh, uh, millions of Canadian victims uh, of of, the hack, the theft of uh, credit cards, and purloining money from gift cards, and uh, everything else that went on.
0: John, I, I obviously we're going to have to learn a lot more about this uh, as, as this case unfolds, and hopefully we're going to get some more details sooner than later on this. But, you know, the question everybody here is asking is, how does a young guy from Ancaster get involved with Russian security forces?
2: Well, um, actually, these guys were uh, – his partners were ex-Russian security, but they were in the FSB. That's the uh, the new version of the, uh, of the KGB. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I guess, I mean, it's the old, uh, spy novel plot device number two, but, uh, members going rogue, taking their, their, their talents, uh, for, uh, electronic security and, and their computer skills and going off and working on them privately. Uh, and then, uh, Baratov, uh, again had been, uh, picked up somewhere. It looks like he'd been, uh, already, uh, developing reputation as a hacker in his teens, early teens. And, uh, they roped him in, but uh, I think he also looks to be one of the weak links in the uh, in Group uh, Four, just because he he's living the high lifestyle right off the bat, and wasn't sitting quietly with his uh, winnings, but you know buying sports cars and living the high life,
0: which seems to run counter to what uh, we've heard about people that are involved in. And, and again, in this case, it's alleged. We have to get that that far. Nothing's been proven in court yet. But uh you know we've we've heard from other people who have been involved in other facets of organized crime in the past They've always said don't look like you've you've got lots of money because that's going to raise awareness uh Do you think that may have been a factor in this um,
2: perhaps not I mean really the, the investigation uh, has largely been digital, not physical, but it certainly uh, uh, by the time uh, Bartov came to the attention of the uh, the r c m p um it would have confirmed what they've been uh, getting told from uh, from the U.S. and from other countries that he was part of the plot.
0: John, you mentioned just a, a couple of seconds ago about the potential damage that could have been done by the, by this hacking. Who would have been affected by this, and who are they targeting? I mean, we were—I know the first release said they were targeting uh, U.S. government officials and Russian intelligence officials, but clearly, if you're hacking this many accounts, there's a lot more people that are going to be affected.
2: Well, they—they were hacking millions and millions of accounts. Um, the, the gold nuggets in, in what they took, you know, the, the prize stuff was the uh, the accounts of individuals who would be of interest to the Russian government, and it does look like they were paid a commission uh, from somebody in, in the FSB for uh, the, uh, the accounts uh, of, of particular key individuals. I mean, for all we know, you know, that some of the principles in the last US election in both parties might have been uh, compromised this way but you know hundreds of other people that would have been of interest to the FSB might have been exposed but um the real point is that uh, there were uh, millions and millions of Yahoo accounts accounts that uh, were gleaned, and these guys also look like they made most of their money um by looking for financial information Uh, especially for internet purchases, so uh, looking for gift cards and credit cards and uh, taking the information from that and and using it to commit fraud.
0: In situations like this, I guess we can only speculate until we get more details about this, but uh, again, I know his his heritage is from Kazakhstan, but he's uh, obviously been in Canada for quite some time. Did they look for him or did he contact them, do you think, to try to, to develop this partnership as it turned out?
2: I suspect that the uh, they looked for him, that uh, they, they might have detected him right off the bat. But, I mean, what, this is one of the things we're really going to have to wait for the trial to, to see how the recruitment worked and what was involved in it.
0: How elaborate are are, the, are these situations? And again, this is interesting for many of us because John, I mean, you're a security expert. Thankfully, you're available to talk to us about this today. For many of us, though, uh, that we're we're just not computer compliant with an awful lot of this stuff. Is there a process in place here where you, you just decide, hey, I'm going to hack something today? How how intricate is is the plan to actually get into some of these files?
2: Um. Well, computing power, looking for weaknesses, and exploiting them. I mean, it, it, in, cyber, in cybernetics, the principle's is the same as anything else. Uh, look for the opening and wedge it open and then get in and start to exploit it. But, uh, again, in this particular operation, again, we don't know how much of this was all digital when they set the team up. You know, did uh, uh, Baratov actually meet face-to-face with his uh, with the other three defendants? Uh, and did they recruit him, uh, or was it just all done over the Internet?
0: The, there's a, a phrase that I saw in a couple of the reports right now. They called it spear phishing. A, the fact that this has got a title right now tells me that obviously this is something that that authorities are aware is going on these days, where uh, I guess they were going after dozens of counts for the uh, FSB and uh, uh, unauthorized access to Google and, and other website providers as well. This was a pretty extensive operation.
2: Well, automated. Uh, and And again it this is also I think the, everybody's worst nightmare. It's what, what we've always been afraid of with the internet is that you can actually have uh, a handful of people, literally four of them doing this much damage if they succeed. And, and the point is is the, there are other handfuls of people like this who would love to be able to succeed uh, just as much. Um, you know there are dozens and do- probably hundreds little operations like this, all sort of scrabbling away at the defenses and trying to find a way in. These guys got through, and, you know, two of them were extremely well-connected.
0: How long would an investigation like this take place? I mean, obviously, uh, it's one thing to say, yeah, there was an arrest in Ancaster in in our neighborhood. Uh, But, I mean, the U.S. Justice Department is involved in this. The RCMP is involved in this. I would imagine CSIS might have something to do with this as well. Uh, It sounds like a lot of pieces came together to, to make these arrests.
2: Well, this, this is actually one of the, uh, the whole points about international uh, transnational crime, especially over the Internet, uh, is that the criminal can operate really quickly. You know, again, you're looking at the speed of the Internet. That's how fast it takes you to uh, commit your crimes, uh, exploit them, and, and take the loot and, and move it around. The problem for investigators is they are officers of the law. They have to follow jurisdictions. They have to follow procedures. There are limits to what they can do. So it takes them years to put things together. I mean, the the Yahoo hack was noticed uh, in uh, basically 2013. In fact, actually, a couple of these guys had come up uh even before then, earlier that year as uh, among the FBI's most wanted cyber criminals. But it still took four years to complete the investigation. And even then of course we have to see how the trial's going to go. So for one thing for hackers is yeah, you could you can sure outrun the, the slow plotting police. But you can't <sighs> outrun them indefinitely.
3: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
0: A bit of a clearer picture as to what's going on with the transit system. And I don't just mean LRT project. I'm talking about transit, the whole enchilada, the big thing here. And uh, to suggest that there are a number of challenges here would be a massive understatement. Uh, many of them are financial, and the uh, city council is going to have some tough decisions to make as to how they're going to deal with some of these things. Chad Collins is the council for Ward 5. Uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Chad. How are you doing today?
3: I'm doing well, Bill.
2: Yourself?
0: Good. You guys have got to be frustrated, because I, I mentioned in my commentary earlier this morning, uh, I, I think by and large, everybody on council is, uh, is on side now that transit's important. It's a priority. We've got to invest in this. You, you're, you're talking the talk. You're putting money towards this right now. And you're not getting the results that you need.
3: No, and and we have issues on a number of fronts. And, um, you know, as you've previously reported, you know, our transit ridership numbers are down. At the same time we're making significant investments in the system, we're seeing reduced ridership. And and that's not just in Hamilton, that's across the province and across the country, and even it's uh, symptomatic in some parts of North America as well. So we're we're investing more into the HSR. Of course, our 10-year plan, uh, part of that, the first two years in 2015 and 16, we were looking and seeking to uh, reduce some of the historic problems that have plagued the HSR. And so oftentimes we'd have buses on some of our more popular routes that would just simply pass people by because they were full. Um, We had issues with schedule adherence. And so for the first two years of the plan, um, we hired more drivers. I think we hired 50 new HSR employees over two years, and uh, we put more buses on the road, and uh, we tried to solve those two problems. And so first uh, part of the plan was fix the system, and the next eight years that are in front of us is to enhance the system and provide more
0: service in, in different areas of the city. And, and that sounds wonderful, except for the fact that you've got some huge budget pressures right now, and some of your council mm-hmm. colleagues are saying, I don't know if we can afford to do this now.
3: And, and that's right. And, and so it's, as was reported today in The Spectator by Matthew Van Dongen, the uh, Presto system that's run by Metrolinks and the province, they've um, they've hinted to municipalities that we're going to see uh, large increases on the horizon over the next number of years. We're looking at a 9% increase to use the presto system which is a pr- provincial system it was purchased by the province and there's a user pay system in place for all municipalities that use it and uh, currently we're paying i think several hundred thousand dollars a year that cost is now poised to raise to uh, the neighborhood of around three million dollars annually and so that is something that we have not budgeted for Um, It is mandatory by the province. It's almost like a form of political blackmail. You don't get your gas tax revenues unless you pay into the Presto system. So there's really no discretion for council to avoid that cost. It's something that's coming our way and we need to pay the bill. Um, And, and, you know, without balking at that $3 million bill from the province um, would mean that we'd lose $10 million or $11 million in gas tax revenues.
0: The other thing, too, from the numbers I've seen here, Chad, is there's not much of an uptake on the Presto system in Hamilton, anyway.
3: No, we're seeing, I think, a 60% usage rate across the province, and in Hamilton, we're around the 20% range. And, and that's for several reasons. Um, one, the, the system really isn't convenient. Um, it, it's, you know, we've received complaints in the past from users that it's hard to recharge the cards um, we've, we have a clientele that has historically relied on bus passes and bus tickets and cash fares. And so I think we have a different demographic here in Hamilton. We have a, a history of people using a different fare structure and fare system. And it's been difficult for not just HSR representatives, but Presto and Metrolinx employees to, uh, to convince local uh, transit riders to use the Presto system rather than some of the other alternatives that are available to
0: them. Well, yeah, because when you talk to some of those people, I know you've heard from them for years now, you know, mm-hmm. the, the sale job that the province used when Presto was initiated was, hey, you know, you can travel from Hamilton all the way over to Oshawa now and, and, and never have to. Nobody wants to. <laughs> they, right. they said, yeah, I just want to go downtown, okay, or I just want to go over to Strathurne. I don't need all this stuff. So they look at this as a frill, really, that they don't really think is necessary for Hamilton transit users anyway.
3: You're right, Bill. It was it was uh, really uh, sold at the beginning as more of an interregional uh, transportation amenity or perk. And um, and it was also sold by the province as a system that would continue to be revenue neutral for municipalities. That certainly hasn't been the case, and within 3 or 4 years, depending on what HSR ridership numbers are like and the usage if it stays around the 20% range that we're currently at, um, you know, local ratepayers will see a half a percent increase on their tax bill just for the Presto system. And and that's on top of the investments that we're making to participate in the federal government transit program that they have. And you and I have talked several times on the PTIF funding, which is the transit funding that's been distributed to municipalities by the federal government. And, of course, the province decided this time around to opt out. And so instead of a third, third, third scenario, which is traditionally the infrastructure um, the program requirements and, and um, template that we traditionally use, we're now looking at 50-50. And so instead of paying $25 million of a $75 million investment, we're now paying uh, 35, almost 40 million when you factor in the, the debt charges. And, and so that is an, a cost that council had to deal with uh, earlier this year. And we've incorporated that currently into the, the budget process. That was $4 million dollars. And, of course, we have the transit enhancements this year that are going to cost us another $2.5 million. So when you add all that up, I know it's a lot of numbers to digest, we're probably looking at almost a full percent on the tax bill for transit-related initiatives. And that, as you said at the start of the conversation, that doesn't
0: include what's to come with LRT. Well, and herein lies the problem. Uh, it's it's one thing for council to say, well, that's that's this, this is tough. But if we do this, at least we know at the end of the road that, uh, that we're going to see some positive numbers, and there'll be increased ridership, and people will like the system. There's no guarantee. I know there's no guarantees in life at all. But I mean, it, you know, you guys have been there, done that before, and you haven't had much success with this. And uh, you know, you got to be scratching your head, saying, wondering what's going on here.
3: And that's right. And, and I think you know, when you couple that bill with some of the other discussions that we've had, and you've had with others around what we're doing corporately, I mean, we, we just. L- we just uh, dismissed uh, almost 25 employees several weeks ago. Um, it, when you look at the transit enhancements this year, we're poised to put five new buses on the road. We're looking at 26 new hires for HSR, and uh, that'll mean another two and a half million dollars on the levy. So corporately, you know, we're making investments in the HSR that we will, you won't find anywhere else in the organization. It's really running counter to everything we're doing in all other departments and divisions. We're, you know, we're adding employees. We're, we're we're increasing the budget more certainly far more than the rate of inflation and um, and you won't find that anywhere else and so you're right I think people around the council table are starting to scratch their heads to say, and saying you know is this a sound investment at this point in time and and we will start to see I think questions at the next budget meeting that will um, hint at you know is there an opportunity for us to pause those new hires to not purchase the five extra buses this year, to freeze the tax um, uh, uh, pressure of $2.5 million, to to, uh, delay the $0.10 increase on fares uh, in light of the fact that we're not seeing new riders in the system and in light of the fact that we've already made significant investments in the HSR in other areas.
0: With that in mind, and and traditionally, Chad, you've seen this all the years you've been on council, every time there's a fare increase, uh, ridership goes down. That just seems to follow no matter what, Uh, no matter who does it, as a matter of fact. So with that in mind and with these budget pressures, is the proposed fare increase this year off the table as far as you're concerned?
3: I don't have a crystal ball, but if I had to guess where council is today, I would think that the, the fare increase is probably off the table. And if I had to guess, I would say that the enhancements um, in terms of the 10-year strategy are off the table. We're still going to move ahead with the, um, the PTF funding for the federal government investment. We're, we're bound to pay the extra presto costs. We're most lo- likely looking at another increase in the DARTs budget. That's unavoidable. We need to certainly take care of those people who have disabilities and require trans- special transit system as well. So th- those costs will be invested. They will have. There will be a budget pressure associated with that, but I think the, the enhancements as part of the 10-year strategy bill will probably be um, – uh, I, I, I think that 10-year plan will probably become an 11-year plan at some point in time.
0: And, and you know you're going to get flack for that from uh, the, those that are supportive of this that uh, that want to see a more aggressive approach to to what you're doing in transit.
3: Well, I think we have been aggressive. I mean, I would point to the you know, the tax levy in terms of what's funneled to the HSR. And over the last uh, five years, I think we've we've put ten million dollars uh, from the tax levy into the HSR. And so I you know for some people that's certainly not enough. but at, at some point in time, you know, council needs to look at the fact that there's an affordability issue with people who are sitting at home looking at their tax bill and wondering where their tax dollars are going. And when we're funneling it into a system where we don't see results, where, where, you know, we start to question the return on your investment. Is this the best place to invest when there are limited resources? And, and I would suggest that uh, there needs to be some second, sober second thought as it relates to what we're investing and how much and along what timelines. Um, and so we've made significant you know, investments in the last couple of years. Some people haven't recognized that. There's certainly a, a small group, I think, in the community that have said we need to do a lot more than than what we're doing. Um, you know, we're looking at a modest 10 cent increase in fares in, in in the context of the fact that we have the lowest fare structure across the entire province of Ontario. We have. Our seniors' rates, and they should be around this level are half of what they are in other communities are um, are just our regular fares for an adult is below the the um, the median, the provincial median. And so you know when you look at that we' we certainly are um, on a per capita basis, we're paying a lot on the levy more on the levy maybe than we are in other communities, and for some to suggest that we need to go even further, I think is a difficult pill to swallow.
0: Chad, are we are we missing something here? I mean, in very simplistic terms, I can remember sitting with a transit expert some years ago, who simply mm-hmm. said, "Look, if you guys if you just make it more affordable and more convenient, the ridership will follow." And and it's never going to be profitable. Transit never is, but at least it's it'll be tenable. And it it doesn't seem to be working. Is there a piece of the puzzle here that that we're, we seem to be missing here in Hamilton?
3: Well, I think we're a different community than, than what you'll find in the GTA. And for as much as the province is trying to make us a permanent part of the GTA with the Presto Pass and inter-regional transportation and projects like the LRT, um, we are a distinct community from others. It's still convenient to drive in almost all areas of the city, except for it's certainly it's during, you know, rush hour in the morning and during the evening, which all, all communities experience congestion during those times. It's still a convenient drive almost anywhere in the community it's inexpensive certainly to um to park in the city and so when we look at the culture that we have here and it's it's very much centered around a car culture there's no disputing that um we're very much different than toronto and so when people in toronto are taking transit in many cases because a they can't afford to to own a vehicle in toronto it's it's expensive to permanently park somewhere even with in a residence they're charging exorbitant fees for people to own a parking space in a condominium building um, it's expensive to pay for parking outside of your residence if you're traveling um, anywhere in the GTA and of course the whole issue of congestion which we don't experience here. People are forced to take public transit in Toronto because it is actually quicker to get from point A to point B in many instances on public transit than it is if from if, uh, as it relates to using your own vehicle. So here in Hamilton we're not experiencing those challenges. And I think because of that, we still find that many families and individuals across the municipality are still reliant on a car and feel comfortable driving a car rather than taking transit. So it is a difficult sell. There's no doubt about that. Um, There are certainly environmental benefits from getting people to gravitate from a vehicle uh, into public transit system. And we're doing everything we can to try to encourage that. However, at the end of the day, uh, people have their consumers and they have a choice to make. And people have chosen locally to own a vehicle Rather than take public
0: transit, and it's a chicken and egg thing, isn't it? I mean, because really now, now you're starting yeah. to go down that road. No, not you personally, but I mean, of of uh, well, this had anti-car culture again. You guys are going to try to force us off the road, and there's yeah. always going to be a pushback on that. And then, and and they would say, and I think with some legitimacy too, you can't raise parking rates and you can't force us out of our cars because you don't have a transit system that'll support us. Now. So, so you know, you're yeah. damned if you do, damned if you don't.
3: You're right, and that's exactly the position we're in right now, Bill. You've, you've summed it up quite nicely with that last comment.
0: So, where do you go? I mean, obviously, uh, you know, you, there's a meeting next week, and you guys are going to start crunching some numbers on this. And you're going to, as I mentioned, we're going to have to make some pretty tough calls here about the ten-year transit plan, about the fare increase, and things of this nature. But even if even if you do put that on hold, and even if you do hold off on the fare increase, you're not out of the woods yet. No
3: that that same um, fair that that same fair issue. The 10-year transit plan, even if it's delayed one year, it's back in front of us in 218, and those cost pressures don't go away. And that's coupled with whatever is going to come with the federal budget later this month. What we've heard uh, behind the scenes from the federal representatives is that there is a phase two for transit funding that's on the horizon. And so the city will most likely be forced to incorporate another cost pressure if if we want to take advantage of the funds that are available and made available by the federal government, we'll most likely have another cost pressure in front of us in 211. So it, there are no easy answers to this this file, especially in light of the fact that we're, we're pressing to, again, pass one of the lowest tax increases in the province with the, the 1.8 target that we have. We've already seen a number of municipalities lock in at three or high twos, and uh, we're poised next week to come in, I think, at two and a half, And council, I see, is is still anxious to get uh, lower than that target. So it's a balancing act. And uh, there will be some very tough decisions for council to make. And uh, not just in 2017, but 2018 and beyond.
0: We're not unique here, as you mentioned off the top here. This is a, not a uniquely Hamilton problem. This is going on with other cities, uh, notwithstanding the fact that some of the other major cities like like Montreal and, and Toronto and, and Calgary uh, seem to get a bigger share of the transit pie anyway. But is it is it time to have a discussion with the federal and provincial governments in this country right now about transit as your shared service instead of just dumping this all on property taxpayers?
3: I think it is. And and the concern that I have, Bill, is that, you know, I I think I referenced earlier, it's almost a form of political blackmail. If you you want the funds, you have to pay into the system. And and what we've increasingly seen over the last couple of years, especially at the province, when it comes to infrastructure funding, they've placed all of their eggs in one basket. And so, as you know, the biggest investment we're going to receive from the province is for for the LRT. It's a billion dollars in funding. And there are no other programs available to the municipality for roads and bridges and all the other infrastructure-related issues that we've talked about uh, for the last number of years. Same holds true for the federal government. Thankfully, uh, they've seen fit to invest in housing. They have a housing program, and we're poised to receive some of those funds, and and we'll make um, good on our promise to improve the housing stock here locally. And the second fund that they're, they're funding is transit again, left out of that at the federal level are roads, bridges, sidewalks, sewers. Um, you know, those are those discussions around our our council table can sometimes go on and on for days as it relates to the shortfalls related to those. And, and those are, quite frankly, the calls, the majority of calls that we receive at City Hall are for those infrastructure deficiencies. When there's a storm and people are flooded, people are looking for increased investments in sewer and, and water infrastructure uh, when roads are crumbling and the sidewalks are, are unsafe, people are calling and asking us to fix it. And when we're trying to do all of that on the backs of municipal ratepayers in the absence of having provincial and federal funding, it becomes a very untenable situation. And tough decisions need to be made during the budget. And, and the, I think the discussion we're having right now is reflective of the fact that you know the province and feds over the last just couple of years have tended to put most of their eggs into one or two baskets, and that I don't think is financially responsible.
0: Well, it's still informative to understand that uh, of all the G8 nations, Canada, Canada is the only one that does not have a national transportation policy. Uh, yep. and, and, and that's mind-boggling, really. A country the size of ours with, with uh, now about, a, what is it, 82% of the people in this country live in urban centers now, and, uh, and we're not linking them. And the federal and government and the provincial governments, for that matter, too, are, are being derelict in their duty and understanding that there's, there's got to be some symmetry there. And they're not, they're not there yet.
3: That's right. No, I, I agree. And, and, you know, we're 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 certainly looking to them for some leadership. We're also looking for funding. And um, and I, I think that we've received certainly from the federal government. Uh, I think they're listening. It, it will it remains to be seen when they announce their budget um, in in just a, a short while as to whether or not they're they're open to uh, an infrastructure program that goes beyond transit and housing. The province, I'm I, I'm not certain. I mean, we're you know, we're we're talking about the increased costs for Presto. Municipalities recently, Bill, were left out of that 25% hydro funding that you've covered extensively over the last uh, number of weeks in terms of the reductions that are on the horizon. They're available to residents and small businesses, but they're not available to municipalities. And so ratepayers through their taxes will end up paying exorbitant hydro fees for municipally owned facilities. And so we keep getting costs, you know, we've talked about downloading ad nauseum over the last decade, but um, you know we keep seeing co- additional costs from the province and uh, cost pressures and and that just makes the budget process that much more difficult because it, and many times we don't anticipate these these costs or these fees uh, coming our way and when you open the paper or receive a memo from um, you know queens park advising that you know guess what surprise this year you're you're supposed to incorporate three million dollars extra for presto it, it's I don't know who you know can can run their own household that way, where you see those types of increases on a day's notice and really no discretion. It's it's not like it's something that can be avoided. It's mandatory.
2: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML.